Hi, I'm Darren Steele, and this is Think Queerly, a podcast that empowers LGBTQ2 thought leadership and creative expression to cultivate inclusion, diversity, understanding, and social change for universal human dignity. Well, the person I'm speaking with today is Dax Moy, or Coach Dax Moy. He's a transformational coach and the creator of the Mind Map Mastery Neuro Coaching Diploma. This is what I had been studying for about a year and a half, and I received my diploma, my certification, in the middle of February this year, 2022. Now, the reason I wanted to have Dax on the show is because, you know, I've been exposed to him now for several years and participated in a month-long, 30-day intensive transformational coaching program that was focused on working with other coaches. And then the Mind Map Mastery program, which was, I'm guessing, about 400, 500 hours worth of study, both taking in the trainings, thinking, practicing, and putting everything into place. So what I've studied from a coaching standpoint from a behavioral science or the neuroscience of transformational uh, coaching standpoint has really influenced my thinking over the last couple of years in how I approach everything that I do. So it's a really in-depth episode. We get into right at the beginning why so many of our challenges in life come from language and linguistic challenges, the the inability to maybe be clear with our words, our meaning, and our intention, and how this, of course, plays out online. And what's so important to me about this uh, episode, and I hope you take that as well, is, is this greater discussion and understanding of how our emotions and feelings make us aligned with decisions that are most meaningful to us. And that's the work that I do as a coach, ultimately, is helping people get clarity and focus and direction and to be aligned with what they most want on an emotional or a feeling level, which means they can do what they need to do and what they want to do more easily because, to use the word again, they're aligned. They feel motivated. They feel like like they're doing something for themselves that makes them feel like they're they're following their values and what's most important to them. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It'll kind of give you a sense of how I think now, having spent near the last two years working with Coach Dax Moy. I am with Coach Dax Moy. I'm going to put coach in front of Dax Moy. I don't know if you want me to do that. (laughs) Let me say briefly uh, that I recently completed your Mind Map Mastery Certification Program, the Neuroscience of Transformational Coaching. So that's one of many things that you do, and that's the way in which I've been most closely involved and worked with you over the last couple of years as well as being in a shorter 30-day intensive group and following you for quite a number of years and and participating in some of your posts and such on Facebook. Maybe you can tell myself and the listeners how you might sort of identify yourself within the the scope of what it is you're most interested in doing now, and and, (laughs) and then we'll get into the where you've come from. It's like, what are my professional pronouns? Um, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's. I find it really difficult to really, um, you know, as as you know, a bit tongue in cheek there. But you know, you're talking about how hard it is to nail me down. I I find it hard to nail myself down. 
Um, coach is one I'm very, very comfortable with. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely comfortable being a coach. It doesn't, it doesn't kind of bother me if you want to put it that way. But, right. but yeah, I mean, I work in, I ultimately work in transformation, but that the form of transformation can take many different, or it can be, it can follow many different modalities and look very different for different people, including for myself. Um, so sometimes I'm an educator, sometimes I'm a mentor, sometimes I'm a, um, an author, sometimes I'm a public speaker, sometimes I'm a, I'm a trainer and, and sometimes I'm a coach. Um, but all of it, like every, every aspect of how I sharpen the world, or at least how I try to sharpen the world, uh, cause no one's, no one's infallible, right? So but every aspect of how I try to sharpen the world is really about helping people to experience themselves as the version of themselves that they most want to meet. That's probably the best the best way of putting what I do or what I feel my sense of purpose is around what I do. So give it, it, one of my big beliefs is if you're very clear on what your purpose is, the, the modalities and methodologies can change as long as the principles don't constantly change, right? So kind of I, I have a set of principles that I, that I approach and a general philosophy that I use, um, and I'm quite happy to use whatever tool is in the toolbox to, to bring me to that. It's a really interesting way of framing it. Um, the fact that you mentioned purpose just makes me think I was having this conversation with a, a, a client yesterday or the day before we were talking about the difference between purpose, mission, vision, and sometimes words overlap and people have a, a an idea of what purpose and mission mean. And, you know, just, just for myself, how I think about it, I tend to think of mission more like my business or organization and purpose as the personal, but they certainly overlap. Now, I remember uh, this maybe four years ago. I th- I wasn't sh- I'm not sure if this was um, the year before COVID, the, the January maybe of 2019, when you did your 30-day uh, deep dive transformational mm-hmm. program. And at the very end, the, the, the last exercise was developing your purpose. And you were pulling on all the things that we had learned and I had written something and I had then posted in the, the group forum, like, oh, I feel kind of let down. I didn't feel like this was a really, you know, motivational purpose. And it just felt like we're all this work and this is all I got. And you countered, it's like, wow, mate, this, this is pretty damn powerful to me. And after just a little bit of tweaking for the language, it's just uh, when you freely love who you are, you can freely be all that you want. And as I sat with that the next day, and I'm thinking that that has been a consistent purpose for me for years, that's moved into what I might call my my business purpose, empowering LGBTQ thought leaders and creators to become more skillful. There's that connection. But I love that you said like holding onto your purpose and then having the principles that may support that and maybe even learning more principles. And I recognize that this aspect of love, happiness, joy, how that has influenced everything that I've been doing going going forward. And that just how you said that kind of gave not so much more credence, but just made me realize something I hadn't quite realized. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of people get caught up in the, you know, if you think of it as kind of like downstream, you know, you talk about missions and visions and all of these kind of, and they're, they're, they're all important. They're, they're, there's no, there's no um, argument from me that though having those things in place isn't impactful and powerful. Um, but certainly 
the way I think about it, the way I've kind of brought myself to think about this over over the years is that purpose is what ensures, it's kind of like your North Star, it's what ensures that no matter how many detours you take in life, no matter, no matter, no matter how many side paths and side journeys you take, you say, ah, oh, right, but I'm still moving, I'm either still moving toward this or if I, if, if I wanted to adjust my course any day of my life, all I've got to do is turn, face the North Star and, and kind of keep walking in that direction. So that for me, that's what purpose is. Purpose is the North Star. It's the, it's the big reason why you, at the very least, why you think you're here, yeah. right? And when I say why, why you think you're here, like as in the best story you can tell yourself at any moment in time about what you want to exchange the currency of the days of your life for. Lovely. Right? If yeah. I'm going to spend the currency of the days of my life on something, what needs to happen in order for me to feel that that exchange was was fair and fruitful, right? I kind of I I gave my days to this and I got this back in in return. What needs to happen? That's a really simple, elegant way of explaining it. And I remember when, uh, if it wasn't from that program, it was something I learned within uh, Mind Map Mastery. Uh, you tend to take the the complex or around these ideas of purpose or mission where uh, maybe somebody else that's teaching it tries to make it seem so complicated. So you take the complicated and you make it very simple. And you, this is what I've really appreciated about your teachings and the way in which you present the material. Uh, it's very human in the sense of it's very down to earth. And it isn't about just me, me, me in the sense of individual, but it is it goes back to what you said as your purpose, um, helping the individual fully and freely express, you know, themselves in the best way that they can. Uh, and if we get too caught up in what's complicated, well, we're just going to remain in the what's complicated and, and never get into what kind of change we'd like to have happen for ourselves. Right. And, and I think that's, that's one of the big challenges. It, basically, most most transformational challenges, and which means that most experiential challenges, which means most identity challenges that any of us experience, and we all experience all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, most most challenges come from our use of language, so they're linguistic problems. We use very general and vague words to dis- to try to describe something very very specific and personal that's happening within us and around us, mm-hmm. and. It, you kind of in in using those generalities, we stay vague, and so we try to fill in the gaps with complexity. Right? We don't try to fill in the gaps with complexity; we fill in the gaps and make them complex. Yes. Instead of instead of saying, "Let me let me really try and narrow down the linguistics," let me really get the the, the term the term that people in in linguistics and behavioral psychology use is granular. Right? It's yeah. granularity of language. Kind of as you think about grains of sand on the beach. If we can bring words down from kind of big, wide, oh, you know, all-encompassing concepts to no, what I really mean is this. Like, so an example that that I gave in a podcast I was on earlier this week was, you know, very often we'll we'll throw away a word like love and we'll say, oh, you know, kind of it's all about love for me. And I go, great, okay. But then you'll hear that same person use like, oh. I really love my work. I really mm-hmm. love my, my wife. I really love my, my children. I really love chocolate. I really like, so you've used the same word. So 
if you were to line those people up in a line, you know, we were coming to the end of the world and you were allowed to grab two things that you love, what would you grab? It probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be chocolate and it probably wouldn't be your career, right? <laughs> right? I mean, maybe yeah. maybe for some people, I don't know, but kind of it probably wouldn't be those things because you'd say, that's ridiculous. I don't mean that. So if you don't mean it, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. try to get to the bottom of what you really mean when you use a word, word mm-hmm. for something, right? And now as we start to do that, we get more granular. As we get more granular, we get simpler. Life becomes more simple because we don't use one word to describe a whole host of thousands of possibilities. We use one word to describe one thing. And then we say, and when I say this word, I mean this. And when I say this word, I mean this. And I think that's where a lot of my simplicity comes from is because I personally have, um, you know, I, I get frustrated at not really understanding what people mean when they say something. Mm. Um, And so, you know, and I also get frustrated myself when I'm trying to share something with someone and it's not coming out. My brain knows what what wants to be expressed. And then it's saying all this kind of what, what I call bullshit in the middle, right? It just starts right. confounding and, and conflating words and meanings and stuff. And I go, why the hell am I saying it that way? It doesn't make sense to even to me anymore. Yeah. And, pe- you know, people's, people's brains operate better on simple concepts than on, on complex ones. Well, there's something there as well about alignment. So uh, throughout what you've taught me over the years and in a mind map mastery, you talk about emotional alignment. Um, I think this is so relevant when it comes to our thoughts and our words as well. And I've even many years before I was introduced to you and started following your stuff, I mean, coming from a having studied German language and linguistics at university and going through to the master's level, I, my, my geek out was like not just pure linguistic theory, but understanding the words, the way in which sentences were constructed. Uh, I remember doing talk about geek out at the master's level, doing an essay about a German novella about the use of uh, a particular kind of verb, structure because all the verbs were ending verbs like something was moving towards death something was moving towards decay um and usually it um it was some sort of a prefix at the beginning of the word and so i was you know going through the text and but that's the granularity as an example of going through this text to create a greater sense of meaning, a greater sense of feeling of what that author was trying to express, but then an understanding sometimes where our words come from etymologically, historically, it doesn't mean the word means that today, but it certainly has a resonance. If we can, we sometimes have to go out broad before we can come back in to go granular. Um, And this is something that sometimes is so problematic when people start to say, well, this word can mean this. And it's like, well, we have to be kind of careful. You know, the, the light example is saying love for everything. The more problematic example is in, let's say, if we get into politics, and we don't have to go into that exactly here, but when people start to throw around words without care, then we can get into some really great trouble. Yeah. Uh, and so and so the 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 key here, like regardless of where, like I, I'm a big etymologist. I love etymology. It informs a lot of, you know, and as you, as you quite rightly said, things do change etymologically over time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we start to use, you know, thing like that's cool. We don't necessarily mean it's cold. Right. <laughs> right. And that's wicked. It, it doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's evil. Right. So we, right, we do right. change uses of things, but 
one of the things that you do learn from a from a, a a good grounding in etymology is how and this is the key word here how intentional the use of the word used to be mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it meant this and i think one one of the one of the challenges i see as a coach and a, and just generally as a human being is mm-hmm. a lot of people have lost their intentionality or lost the skill of intentionality um that kind of and that's that's where we end up with so so many combative and conflicting um, forms of communication because we we know what we mean we expect them to know what we mean because we we're of the same era you might say and if I'm saying a word surely you should be translating it the way that I do and that's just mm-hmm. not how we work our social influences are are kind of you know every, every aspect of becoming who we are now has informed our choice of words mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right and so. When we're, when we're working intentionally with someone over time, we really do have to start thinking about, are we both using the same, you know, we both may be English speaking mm. and we both may have even grown up in the same city, right? In the same country, in the same city, in the same era. And mm. yet we may still be miscommunicating because we mean different things when we use the word or how we, how we put those words together. So it's kind of like when you communicate with someone, it's kind of like learning a new language. Mm-hmm. And the way, the way I, I best describe that then, uh, this importance of understanding our own use of words and granularity, is that if I have to teach you my language, I have to know it damn well myself. I have yeah. to sit down and say, what do I mean when I say this? Yeah. So that not so, not so much so that you don't get offended. Like It's not my job to make sure that you don't get offended or whatever. So that you don't get confused. Or in, in another way of putting it is so that we can get the best possible communication yeah. When, when, we're, when we are communicating, right? The, even the word communication um, etymologically means to become one with, yeah. right? If I'm trying to become one with you during, the, during this conversation, it re- it's really helpful to, to know what you mean when you say something, to know what I mean when I say something, and to know what are the similarities and what are the differences. Yeah. And it's, it, the reason I say it's like learning a language is because, um, you know, like um, English-speaking countries, French-speaking countries, Spanish-speaking countries—they all German-speaking countries—they all use a different word when they when they might say the word window, right? Right. But we all mean the same thing, but we use a different word to say it. So you know, it's it makes sense then that like you don't go into another country and expect them all to know what you mean by "Could you open the window, please?" You'd you'd maybe make some effort to learning the language. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense to learn the language of the people around us. But in order to learn the languages of those people, it's we're, we're, I think we're in a stronger position if we learn our own language and then we share that. You mentioned intention. And there's this idea in – actually, <laughs> I'll give an example, but I actually don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about something from a neuroscience pr- perspective on intention. So often you'll p- uh, read about people saying, well, this person said that intention doesn't matter, of which I completely disagree because I think what you've talked about here is if there's going to be this communing, then intention does matter because we can make mistakes in quotation marks if what I say you don't understand, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't mean necessarily that I'm wrong. It just means I might have to, ah, let me help you understand what I am intending. So from a neuroscience perspective, this is just a question that came to mind. Um, do you have any research or knowledge on 
how intentionality shows up with respect to how we feel our emotions and what that then makes us think and say. Yeah. I, I mean, it, obviously it's a massive, massive, it seems like such a small question, but it's a massive, yeah. massive area. It's a massive field, <laughs> right? Um, if I, if I can, if I can do a, a Dax more simplification on it. Yeah. Intentionality is we, we transmit our intention, not just, not just verbally and by our choice of words, um, but we, we transmit it by every other aspect of how we, how we use the environment, including our physical environment, like the physical environment around me right now, but also the, the physical environment of me. Like, how am I posturing? What are my facial expressions? How am I gesticulating? Like, all of these kind of, kind of things all go in toward transmitting attention, right? Mm-hmm. If I say, I love you, right? And I've got, I've got a mean face and tense body part. Like, the words don't go with the, with the physicality, <clears throat> right? And, you know, like, you know, if, like it's so it's so important to understand that intention is the sum total of yourself in the environment how you use the environment and how you use the physicality of you personally as a part of the environment it's all mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. and a lot of people are just trying to rely on words this is why written communications are particularly like facebook posts and all this kind of stuff they get misconstrued all the time mm-hmm. and people that aren't necessarily your enemy are seen as somebody worthy of worthy of full destruction, right? We yes. dehumanize them and we say, how dare they say that? Particularly if it's an area that you might feel strongly about, you know, politics, gender, religion, you know, any number of things, right? You read something, you say, that disgusting Nazi, how dare they say this about, that's, that may not have been their intention, but when you're only, when you're only translating solely off of words mm-hmm. and you're, you're translating on your meaning for those words, Right. And like, oh, in in my in my community, in my culture, in my kind of in group, we've banned the use of those words. We don't use those words anymore. Right. This person over here doesn't necessarily know that they haven't even been introduced or they may be from a generation where those words were just the word. I'm not I'm not um, I'm not sticking up for any. I'm not saying any words are particularly good or particularly bad. Right. I don't really Mm. care about that from that perspective. What what I'm more interested in is the use of words as a skill set. Mm-hmm. And we have to teach each other what skillful use of words. And we have, and the key word there is each other, or the key part of that is each other. Like it's each not other, for yeah. you to tell me that there are words that I can't use within within the gay community, for example. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's not for you to tell me that. It's for you to invite me to a better set of skills. It's not for me to say, well, I've always used that word, so I'm going to stick with it. It's yeah. for us if we're really going to communicate, if we're really going to become one with. It's not you demanding that I become one with you or you become one with me, right? Mm-hmm. It's us saying, oh, we really want to communicate skillfully. So we move toward each other and we say, this is a better way of us doing it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I know we don't want to get off into into kind of like, it, you know, kind of extreme communications and stuff during this, mm-hmm. this, this call. But, you know, it's one of the problems that I really do see is that there's, a, there's always a group demanding that they become one with means you step toward me. Or I step toward you, right? Versus, no, if it, we're going to meet here, like to use that cliche, meet in the middle. But yeah. it, that doesn't mean selling out on anything that's important to you. But it means you stop demanding that someone, someone has to agree by your definitions of everything. Yeah, it's the uh, the the very challenging proposition of two simple words finding common ground. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 
but you know, I mean, yeah. pe- people have done it, done it all the all down through the ages. But here's the thing: like, it's it's words that that start wars. It's words that end them. We very few people, you know, just surprise attack people, and and like there was no there was no form of communication prior. We just like invaded a country without you know Ukraine's going on, but that that's still off the back of words. Yes, and when it finally does come to its conclusion, it will be off the back of words, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know, kind of people will eventually go, okay, we're going to meet in the middle. That's how it that's how it always ends up. That's you know. And it, I mean, it, there will be whatever happens, there will be study after study. And I mean, it's already being talked about right now without going fully into this discussion. But when you watch the speeches on video delivered by the, the president of the Ukraine, you see a completely different set of intention, of emotion, of a will. I believe when I watch him, a, his willingness to want to communicate and to make connection. Mm -hmm. I feel and sense no deception. I just feel this honest, call it pride uh, and a willingness to put it all on the line um, and not to diminish what's going on, you know, but there is something to be said for holding that space of like video communication in this day and age where everything is too short and taking that time to try and express. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise people don't feel it. Tra- trans, you know, we've come full circle. So transmission of transmission of intention is really what sponsors effective communication without in, without intention. We are, we're, we're, we're operating binary. We're just transmitting kind of ones and zeros. And, yeah. you know, human, humans don't respond very, very well to that. Yeah. You know, so we, we need, we need to feel that, okay, you want this and here's why you think you're entitled to it. And here's why you've taken some of the steps you've taken. Like yeah. it's, it's the storyteller part of the brain. And it's that part of the brain that's really, really interested in creating the best possible prediction and response. Right, that's what the brain comes back to. It's a pattern recognition machine. It uses those patterns to create predictions. It uses the predictions to create responses. It uses those responses to create create outcomes. Right, boom, boom, boom. It's, it's constantly doing this, um, as you know well, full well from the program. And yeah. if we if we don't kind of layer the story full of intention and meaning for what's going on, then it becomes it, it becomes very difficult for the brain to predict. One of the key things that I learned, and it was repeated throughout the, the mind map mastery, is this aspect of our emotions and our feelings. And, you know, I've done some research recently a little bit more into uh, what action programs are and then the, the basic drives we have, like thirst or hunger. Um, and you you taught all of that in, in, in different ways uh, to bring perspective to how I would work as a coach. So I'm interested in if we can have a discussion a little bit more about emotions, feelings, and connecting to our actions and decision-making. Because one of the biggest benefits I've seen since uh, better mastering the skills I've learned and then finally getting my diploma in this program is when I work with clients and I wanted to say drilling down, but I'm not drilling down with them because that sounds like I'm pressuring them in some way. But it's 
really listening, asking the question, getting to, in some cases, like what we just talked about, greater clarity about the words they're using and what they say. Um, and I, just to end this thought, you know, I joked with you yesterday preparing for this. I've recently been making more of my clients cry. And I'm like, oh, yeah, here we go again. And it's not anything to be quote unquote proud of or anything, but it's this moment where the client gets so in touch with either a really deep emotional drive or need that they either haven't been paying attention to, or they've been unconscious about, or they've just been too distracted and too busy. So I wonder if we can talk about the, what's made me missing in your eyes that you see overall. Well, I mean, look, I think the first, the first thing is to understand the distinction between emotions and feelings. They're, they're often kind of, they're all often used interchangeably and we, we kind of, we, we think we're talking about the same thing and we're, and we're really not. So yeah. emotions are sensory driven. They are, they're not, they're not a thought process. Like obviously your brain does some calculation on it, but they're not a thought process. They're not, they're not cognitive and um, conscious, you could say. So uh, your emotions are going to come from how your sensory system is perceiving the world at that moment in time. Okay, so and when we're talking about your sensory system, we are talking about all of the senses, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, balance, kind of, and, and all of the other, other senses that hardly ever get talking about, like the, the sub-senses, like mechanoreceptors in your joints, like thermoreceptors, chemoreceptors, like all of these receptors in your, in your body that are constantly doing a reading of its environment and saying, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe? And it's, yeah. this is the sponsoring question of, of the brain. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? And this partly explains why you can walk into an environment and you can know that an argument just took place there, even though the two people might give you smiles, right? But part of, it, part of your sensory system picks up that the smile is a bit of a plastic smile, that there's a bit of an edge to the person's voice, that there's um, kind of your... From a from a kind of um, olfactory perspective, from from smell your sense, even though you may not smell fear in the air, per, like yeah, specifically, yeah. you're we, we're still endowed with all the same olfactory senses that we were thousands of years ago when we lived in lived in the in the wild, in you know yeah. when we were kind of cavemen. So we still have all of that sensory system going on, going okay. I'm picking up I'm picking up stress hormones in the air and all of this kind of stuff. So why we can pick that up is because the sensory system is doing its job all the time. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? It's why when you walk into a walk into a bar and then you'll sit you'll sit down and there's nothing particularly untoward going on. There's no one throwing punches or anything else. But you go, I'm not feeling comfortable here tonight. I think can we move on to somewhere else? Can we go? Can we go to a different? I, I've had that in places. And then later <laughs> on, I found out you know a friend who stayed there has said, oh, you left at the right time. A massive fight kicked off after after you were there, and somebody got stabbed or whatever, right? <laughs> and you go, "Wow!" Like that was the sensory system picking up on that. That's what emotions are. Mm-hmm. Emotions are the totality of your sensory system giving you signals to create non-cognitive action, like do something about this. I'm I'm going to make you not. Now I'll use the other word. I'll make you not feel right. Right, but feeling is a different thing. But I'll make you I'll make you aware that something is not right in the environment. Or the flip side, right? Because we often think of it like a negative. I'll also make you aware that there's an opportunity in this environment. Right? Mm-hmm. All of the same 
all of the same things. Like you, you can, the, from the olfactory perspective, you can be picking up on positive and happy hormones coming out of a person. You can't even see their face. Their back is toward you, but you're getting good vibes off them, right? Yeah. And you naturally want to move toward that. They, they might be punching out serotonin and oxytocin in, into the air right now, and kind of your, your olfactory system is picking up on that. That yeah. is, that's, what, that's emotion. That is non-cognitive reading of your environment to make you aware of threats or make you aware of opportunities. And just to interject here, what's so interesting about that is that I forget, we forget that that is so much a part of the animal that we still are. Right, right. And, you know, we'll often throw out out the the phrase gut feeling, right? Mm -hmm. I I couldn't tell you why, but I Mm -hmm. knew I had to get out of there. I couldn't Mm -hmm. tell you why, but I knew I was in the wrong place. I couldn't tell you why, but I knew I had to go and approach that guy and kind of start a conversation. I've got no rhyme or reason to it. I just knew Mm -hmm. it was the right thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. Well, your brain had a rhyme and reason to it. You're just not aware because, and, and it, this is exactly how emotions should work. The, our cognitive processes are slow and clunky and clumsy. And if we allow ourselves to stay with cognition for too long, we can talk ourselves out of opportunities or yeah. we can talk ourselves out of, out of dangers where we can go, oh, I'm, I'm probably just making some, some shit up here, right? It's not, it's not real. I don't, I don't need to do anything about this. And then later on, you go, I knew I should have trusted my gut. You know, yeah. so we, we, we throw away that we throw it around like gut feelings. And but gut feelings are basically our emotions. They're, they're, they're kicking. Feelings are when we we get cognitive, we engage cognitive processes often, although not exclusively, but often around our emotions. So an emotion might trigger something and we let uh, let a thought process get into it. Or mm. we might be thinking stuff. And that thinking stuff builds up enough power and enough impetus that we feel something about it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the, the problem with it coming from that direction is that it does, it's not always true. We, we can have engineered a story about danger, a story about opportunity, a story about not being good enough because mm-hmm. we are scanning our environment and looking for cues and creating, creating ideas and ideals about what should be happening and then we tell ourselves a story about it. that's a cognitive process, though. Um, but both have their place and both are both are valuable, um, but they're they're distinctly different. Yeah. And particularly with feelings, we have to we have to have reality checks on them. Yeah. I'm kind of here, here's what I'm feeling about something. Hold on, is that true? And um, where where am I getting my data on this from? And where where am I taking my cues from? You know. Very often, people people's sense of feelings about their self worth, for example, will come from someone that they trusted, yeah. perhaps still trust, but certainly someone that they trusted, particularly in their formative years, telling them about good and bad, right and wrong, uh, morality of certain behaviours and and not of others, and all this kind of stuff that they then carry forward, and then they read every situation through the eyes of that person and say, "I'm a mm. bad person. I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm not good enough. I'm." I'm not something enough, right? I'm simply not enough, right? Um, but, you know, so we'll often create feelings based upon prior experiences through the lenses and eyes of other people. And so we're, that's where we have to be, uh, I was about to say careful, careful is the wrong word. Uh, we have to be intentional and honest in our appraisals of our feelings. Like, where is this coming from? Is, is this my thought or is this the thought that mum and dad gave me 20 years ago that I'm still kind of carrying and using as a framework for for judging what's going on here. 
I think there's a, you know, I'm thinking of a, an example of somebody I was working with um, and they were upset with what someone had said or how someone had treated them. And, you know, I love this question and I've used it when it's appropriate, exactly that you said, you know, is, how do you know that feeling is true or what's true about that feeling? Because you're dealing with that surface level, for lack of better words, just let's say that's the most powerful feeling in the moment that the person is experiencing. And that is the only thing they're focusing on at the expense of going deeper, so to speak. And it just shocks them for a moment. Like, what do you mean? Is that feeling true? It's like, well, and after a few more questions, digging into it and then getting to the root of other things and realizing usually the client realizing it is some probably unmet emotional need, not feeling. And like you've said, they've then gotten stuck on the story, the narrative, the feelings, the cognitive reflections uh, or observations of absent or present emotions. Right. And, and that has got them trapped. That has made them defensive. That has made them feel sad. <laughs> and yeah, like the distinction between going back to the granularity of language, knowing what emotions are, knowing what feelings are. And it's such a great moment of self-awareness, but also humility when someone really sees, oh, I can keep telling myself this story and thus associate this feeling, or I can figure out what need of mine, prediction and response, is not being met. Mm-hmm. And then I, and only I, can decide how to handle that. And it might be that they need to have a conversation with that person, or it may need they just need to come to peace with whatever emotional need is not being met and then move on. Right. I, I, I poorly, poorly translated and, um, and defined feeling will always lead you to problems. Yeah. And it, it will always bring you back in. See, here, that's a, here's another distinction between feelings and emotions. Emotions pretty much always cause us to act in some way, shape, or form, right? Because yeah. that's what they're intended to do. Uh, and emotion is intended to facil- facilitate and expedite action. Mm-hmm. Like, you feel this way, or so you have this emotion, right? So there's mm-hmm. this, this emotion, do this. Yeah, and it might be fight, flight, freeze. Kind of, it could be any number, any number of the of the kind of the common the common behaviors associated with the emotion. Right, take mm-hmm. the opportunity, move in, move away, run away, fight, or whatever. Right. <laughs> the the trouble with feelings is that very often we can get caught trapped in trying to analyze and and justify and rationalize, which means that they don't. There's no commensurate action that goes with them. You right. feel a certain thing. And uh, where, whereas a behavior will normally have an outlet, even, even rage, right? Cause a lot of people kind of see things like the, you know, the rage family of emotions, which goes rage, anger, frustration, and so on. That's all one family, right? So yeah. kind of people, people have gotten in the habit of thinking that that's a, that's a bad emotion to have. All of our emotions are, are they, they have a purpose. So there's no such thing as a bad emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, there's kind of bad use of an emotion, if you will, or unskillful, I prefer to use, unskillful use of emotion. But unskillful use of an emotion only really kicks in when, we're, when we translate feeling onto it and we start to try and analyze it and push, right? Mm. If we actually just behave the way the emotion wants us to, mm. that the, even, even the outburst or whatever it's going to be is going to be kind of fairly small. It'll be over and done with quite quickly because mm. the, the aim is to get you to move, take action right now, boom. 
and then the event is gone. The event that triggers that, and that's the whole point of an emotion. There's an event that triggers it. It causes you to act, which means you're no longer in the presence of the stimulus, or the stimulus is no longer in the presence of you. Yeah. Feelings, we can sit with feelings for years, decades, lifetimes. Yeah. Right? And that's where that's where most people, to use an extremely technical phrase here, most people get fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Right? That that's that's where it happens because because you'll sit for decades, you'll sit for entire lifetimes in your feelings and do nothing yeah. with them. They don't cause you to act or move or change or anything. Yeah. Either you don't leave the environment that caused them or you don't change the environment that caused them. And so you just continue to continue to feel them and then feel some way about them. Right. I guess on the, to go from simple to complex and for the complex, a, a question for you, you know, we can feel hungry, but feeling is the observation of the action program. That's like, Oh, I have hunger or I have thirst coming up and we can create feelings about what we might like to eat and whether we're going to enjoy the process or whether there are other issues around it. But I'm with what you've said, how does this, this may not apply overall, but how does this apply to somebody that has clinical depression with respect to their emotions and their feelings and the, the challenge of stories that they might continually be working through that make it very difficult for them to move out of the way that they're feeling? And is that the right word? So, so depression really finds its roots in, it's going to sound strange when I say it, but it finds its roots in apathy. Okay. Right. So <laughs> you, you can't, you, it's pretty difficult to experience what most of us call depression without apathy. Mm. And apathy finds it, finds its roots in helplessness and hopelessness. Right. right? And that really finds, finds its roots in mostly in suppression of what we're what we're feeling and what we're emoting right so you suppress you, you can't really suppress an emotion in the way most of us think about it you have you have it but you may you may not act upon it because you translate very quickly into feelings and then you tell yourself something about what you can or can't should or shouldn't must or mustn't do so one of the ways i always describe to my clients is that suppression or repression always eventually leads to depression and the reason it does that is because it creates a sense of hopelessness. Fuck it. Nothing, nothing I do or say here is going to make any difference. <clears throat> Nothing's going to change for me. Um, or you go, you go down the route in the storytelling of, <clears throat> of telling yourself fatalistic stories. Damn. Like I, 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 did, it, I did it years ago with um, I was, I'd already, my PTSD had already started. So kind of PTSD from the tsunami came in on my life and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And then I got hit by a massive, um, post dated tax bill. They kind of, they, they said, Oh, just suddenly overnight, 400, 400 K we want you to pay back on top of this year's tax bill. Right. And I was like, crap. And then that means, uh, that means uh, that will deplete my bank accounts. And if that depletes my bank accounts, my my brain started doing the well. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Can't pay the mortgage. Where are you going to live? If you if you don't live there, then you have to do like. And the brain what kind of moved into this really fatalistic cascade of thought. And I, I caught myself in it. But I was like, this is what happens to people all the time. If then, if then, if then, right? And we end up in this kind of helplessness, hopelessness kind of situation. 
And one of the ways that we deal with helplessness and hopelessness is to stop acting. And that's really, that's what you see in depression. Depression is is largely apathetic. It doesn't mean those people don't get up every day and go to work. I'm talking about, I'm talking about apathy as an internal state, not as an external one. They can look busy and they can be on the go and they can be cleaning. They're not like all slobs that lay around on the sofa all day and kind of never do any laundry or anything like that. That's not what I mean by apathy. But there's, a, there's an apathetic aspect of, of, I guess you could call it unskillful acceptance. Because acceptance can be skillful, but it's unskillful acceptance. It's accepting things that aren't necessarily true, but behaving like they are. That's, what, that's apathy. Because it's saying, I, and based upon what, what I know, nothing can change here. So I'm kind of stuck with this crap. That's, that's just the way he or she is, and they're never going to change Mm-hmm. Um, but I also can't leave him or her because of blah, blah, blah. so I have to stay in this crappy relationship and put up with it for the rest of my days. It's, it's apathy, um, and suppression always leads to depression. So you mentioned um, the PTSD. Um, I wonder if you could share with me, share with us a little bit of your journey, um, perhaps what brought you to that point, and then I think. That's when I'm not sure if it was before or around that time that you started to try and figure out how can I help myself? And then you discovered more about neuroscience. Um, and then you turned out to be, in my opinion, <laughs> one of the most proficient teachers of how to use neuroscience uh, within a coaching framework, but in an even more simplistic way of saying it, of, of living a, a fully self-aware life. Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of interesting because before I, I I worked very heavily in neuroscience already, right? I was as, mm-hmm. as a personal trainer, I was a rehab specialist. Um, I I got people out of wheelchairs that doctors said they'd never stand again, they'd never walk. I got you know people post stroke using using their limbs again. Um, neuroscience was a big and important part of it, but I always really used it mostly for the physical. Like I would you know I I tweak the nervous system and get it to do things. I oh, the way we described it was like rewiring, but we were using new neural pathways to do what the old neural pathways kind of could no longer do because of the strokes or because of the conditions that people had. And so I was very successful down that, down that route through the rehabilitative perspective. And I, you know, kind of, I was also a, what you could say, a a more general personal trainer as well. So I'd help people with their fat loss journeys and all that kind of stuff. And I, I was an author, and I, I'd been I'd been really successful with my book, The Magic Hundred, which was all about goal achievement. I was a I was a goals guy, all right. And it was for me the equation was very very simple, and it still is within a specific framework, right? And, and this 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 was really simple. Know what you want, know why you want it, know what the price is, get up and pay the damn price, go and do it, right? And that's it. If, which kind of translated to if you want something badly enough, you'll get it which kind of translated to um, latterly kind of realizing that I spent a big part of my early career judging people for not wanting things badly enough and not taking enough action. And, you know, that's, that's how it was because I'd always been a go-getter. I'd be, you know, I'd joined the joint airborne and commando forces in, in Britain. I'd kind of worked in a special operations kind of role as well. Um, every, pretty much everything with really hard work, everything I kind of wanted to happen kind of happened for me. Right. It wasn't that I passed everything first time. I struggled. I had injuries. But everything I kind of wanted to happen, happened. So I had proof positive 
that if you want something badly enough, you'll get it. And most people were kind of too lazy to see the see the journey through. And just and, as an interjection there, what it sounds to me, I don't, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I've heard so many people say this, they write this, and I just want to bitch slap them. It's like, if I can do it, so can you. Yeah. 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 And, and, but yeah, kind of, that was, that was the place I was coming from. Cause I, you know, I came from really humble beginnings and, and kind of, I'd made something really, really decent over my life. I'd, I'd gone from being completely unknown to in all of the UK and even international press and papers and mm-hmm. TV and radio, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I was making the kind of money that I thought I'd never make. And, you know, I, I wrote a book about it and it, it, that became a bestseller almost overnight. And, um, you know, I, I really believed it. I wasn't, I wasn't bullshitting anybody. I'm like, that's what I believe. Want it badly enough, get up, do it, take the action. Cool. And then one day I met myself as a person who couldn't do that because I'd been in the tsunami with my family. I'd spent hours out in the water carrying bodies and holding, you know, doing very high level first aid on people, like as in holding limbs together and guts in and all this kind of stuff. It was very graphic. Um, and I, I, I got through that fine at the time. Like, you know, um, it's, I wouldn't say it didn't bother me. I was shook up at the end of that day, but uh, kind of, I guess the soldier in me just came in and I, I did what I was trained to do and got on with, mm-hmm. got on with things. I came back to the UK and the following year, my brother died and he died in quite a kind of like horrific world or how I found him was fairly horrific. He died, uh, died of a, um, he, he ingested, uh, he, he got sick. My body basically vomited during an epileptic fit. And I found him like two weeks later in his apartment. It was, and it was the middle of winter, so all the radiators were on. So he was like a blackened zombie that was decomposing and all kinds of stuff. That's how I found my brother. So both of those things happened within about the space of a year. Um, and, you know, heartbroken at a time, but still got on with life. And I was, I was really busy at work. And then about seven years later, I kind of I was driving, driving home. Work had been really stressful and some things that were going wrong, everything that had been going quite well was was going a bit bit kind of strange um and i was kind of kind of stressed and then the stress just opened the floodgates and ptsd found me a kind of i i saw bodies landing on my car i started having flashbacks and visions and waking up in the night i went for a year and a half with just uh, about uh, uh you know kind of two or three hours sleep per week um like literally per week i was, I was <laughs> you know it, it was insane um and yeah, so kind of all the things that the wanting it badly enough and the taking action and set all your goals out and all that kind of stuff, it just didn't work for me anymore. And I spoke to coaches, I spoke to therapists, um, kind of nothing, nothing was working. And, you know, I'd, I traveled the world, I'd spoke to like religious, uh, religious kind of gurus, I'd, I'd had Hopi medicine men dancing over me with with drums and, and smoke kind of in Sedona. I'd done crystal heat, like literally everything. Right? So I went through it for everything. Some things helped better than others, but nothing really, really helped. And then I I just had the epiphany, I guess, that it was kind of go back to the neuroscience. Like, like I think it came, it came from a frustration, why the fuck is none of this working? Like, And what's going on in this damn brain of mine? And then that was like, hold on, what is going on in this damn brain of mine? And then I, I went and leaned into the neuroscience of behavior again, started to break down the kind of the very complex ideas that I found out there. And, and a lot of them were very unusable. There are, there were, they weren't malleable. Like there was data on the brain, but that kind of didn't tell you anything. They go like, 
all these topographical mapping and kind of all these studies and all, you know, I'm, I'm sure since you've been doing this more from a neuroscience perspective, you've read through, you know, and some of them you read a paper and you go, you get to the end of it and you go, so what? I mean, I read, I read literally thousands of papers and I read all the leading books and some books were better than others. Uh, but I read and read and read and read and, but piece by piece, I started to put together, oh, it's, it really comes down to a, the brain will function in a certain way in the presence of these stimulus and not in the presence of those. And it's co- almost got like a switching system that says, oh, it threats around, shut down cognition and desire and want and, and dreams and visions and goals and all that kind of stuff and take care of the threat, right? And then, uh, then it was a bit more of an in-depth dive into, okay, so what does the brain perceive as threat and why? And it you know, and we, we've got all the kind of the, the obvious stuff like kind of lions and tigers and bears, oh my, but the, this, this storyline that basically, uh, which whittled down to in, in mind map eventually to let's forget what the threat itself might manifest as, but really what it is, is a lack of prediction and response. And the brain is seeking that. Give the brain prediction and response about something and it lowers its, its, its threat signals. If it lowers its threat signals enough and it, you could bring you can bring survive drives down, then the thrive drives start to go up. And now you get access to the parts of your brain that create futures and have dreams and want big things and want the best for the world. And, and so it's kind of, you know, that's the, that's the way mind map came about. And that's the way my kind of embracing of neuroscience in a very practical way came about because I really wanted to know what the hell was going on in my brain. And, you know, kind of, it's, it's a bit like that, you know, the uh the the kind of the the alcoholic that gives up booze and tries to persuade everyone everyone that it was the best thing in their life or the smoker that gives up smoking or or whatever it is and it kind of wants to i it's not so much i gave up goal seeking i i still have plenty of goals i have goal lists and all the rest of it i'm just a lot more aware now that the ability to stay on track with them is really dependent upon what my what my brain is feeding on at any moment in time and how it's perceiving its environment and so when I, when I, I still have dark days, I still have um, a kind of areas where I'm too passive and I'm not really, really taking action on the things that I said were important for me. But now those are invitations for, for me to say, what, uh, what am I perceiving as threat that maybe I'm not addressing at the moment? And so it, it, it's definitely been a, been a game changer for me, for the clients I work with, for the thousands of coaches that I've taken through the various programs. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been, it was quite a wake up call to see yourself one day as the goals guy and suddenly who can't even motivate himself to get out of bed. So. It's also interesting to me, having done near 15 years in, you know, personal training, fitness coaching, nutrition coaching, and all of that. And I think that was, that was what opened me up to this idea of coaching. And then I studied for uh, it was a 365 day program and there was something to do every single day uh, with uh, precision nutrition that was founded by John Berardi. Um, and they, that was maybe about 70, 75% different coaching modalities and 25% nutrition because there was a, a level one before that, what that was all the, the technical nutrition stuff. I think there is this aspect of having worked with people's bodies and movement and then their perceptions of what they want, what they believe they can and cannot do. And 
you know, in that you came from that world and you've had a lot of clients go through your program that were also, you know, PTs or therapists. I don't know because I, I wasn't not <laughs> a personal trainer, but in some ways I feel that having had that experience has made my uh, internalizing and understanding of the neuroscience around transformational coaching even more profound. Uh, because I, at least for myself, I really developed in my personal training a, a very keen internal sense, interoception, uh, like case in point, I'll, I'll go get a massage. I haven't had one in, in such a long time. And I describe and the person's like, I've never had a client describe exactly what's going on in their body. <laughs> like he was like, well, it's internalized self-awareness. Doesn't everyone have it? You know, <laughs> it's like, no. Um, but there's, there's something fascinating about knowing how it's not just our minds, but it's, it's everything about us. And if you get a sense, whatever that sense may be of something physically being off, off, is it like, that you have a sore back or is it the way in which you're actually thinking? And that I found very helpful as well in, in some of the work that I've, I've done with clients. And I don't know if that's something that's continued with you or what your observations are on that. Yeah. And, and I think, see, you know, on the one hand, even if we, if we lean into the, the more, I don't mean it in a derogatory way, but it's where it's how coaching evolved originally. It, it evolved from, from kind of like pop psychology, right? Um, which is why most of us, when we first got into coaching, we, we were all talking about people thinking positive thoughts and not 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 holding on to their negative emotions and thoughts and all, all like it, it's pop psychology kind of stuff. And it, we all started there. So anybody who says they didn't, they're bullshitting. And you know, we're, it's so not it, that long ago. Yeah, <laughs> but there's still a, there's still a lot of that around. There's still a a lot of coaching is still pop psychology led in many respects. And it's about, um, you know, kind of taking action, getting up and going, hustle, 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 and work through it. And you're like, or if you, and if you want it badly enough, right, it's all still there. And, I, and so I think one of the things that has really come to me and really, uh, really been helpful over the years is when I meet myself as the person who's not, instead of just putting it down to it's how you're thinking, which is undoubtedly true. There's a part, you know, it's in large part how you're thinking, but I'm more interested in, and the question that comes to me each time is, which part of my brain am I thinking with? Right? It's the biggest realization. It's, it's going upstream another, another, another layer, right? Because what you're thinking is just what you're thinking. It's like you're, you're going to think a certain way if you're in a certain area of your brain, Right? If you are just, just as if you're sexually aroused, then your your intentionality is completely different, and what you're thinking about is going to be very different to if you're experiencing fear because someone just kicked in the door to your apartment and they're standing there with a gun, right? Like what you're thinking is gonna is gonna be relative to the part of the brain that's been activated for the thinking, and I think that's what pop psychology tends to miss, which is just like it's almost like you can overwrite that, like. You know, I know you're thinking a bad thought a minute ago. Let that bad thought go. Think something positive. And I think, you know, coming back to the point you made about being a personal trainer first, I think there are times when I like to think it's about the the body and because I've worked with the body. And it might it may be true. I'm, I'm not certain. But sometimes I think what made me a really good coach was really having enough conversations with people in different states, right? And that 
I saw people hesitant, reluctant, and fearful. And it wasn't a physical fear when they'd first start with me. It was like a, oh, I don't want to make an idiot of myself. I don't want to look stupid in the gym. I don't want to be the fattest, the thinnest, the tallest, the skinniest, the weakest, right? So it was a very social fear. And I I saw a lot of social fear in clients. I also saw a lot of people in physical fear when you give them an exercise. I saw people not being able to physically control the dumbbells or the barbell and stuff. And then I saw them growing into, no, if you stay with a pattern long enough, it will emerge and you'll you'll start to own it. I saw people um, kind of see themselves make improvement. I also saw people see themselves make uh, what I used to call back in the days excuses, right? Kind of like, and and hear themselves, uh, and I watched the patterns of um, justifying and rationalizing the excuse layers. Right? Oh yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't make it tonight because I've got to cancel tonight's session because the boss has kept me late at work. Right? And then I'd be like, okay, what if they keep you late at work tomorrow night and the night after that and the night after that? Right? What, what's your What's your program and your pattern for? And you'd, you'd hear some people entrench. Other people kind of go, oh yeah, I didn't really think about it that way. Oh, maybe I should start carrying my kit in the back of the car. Or mm-hmm. right? And so I think I think a big part of being an actual physical coach, like being a personal trainer. It may be like watching the physical bodies at work. It's, I'm certainly not taking that out of the equation. But I, I think what I got to see was a lot more of – I got to see lived out a lot more of people's thought processes behind things, which means by, by extension of that, I got to see a lot more of people when they're in different parts of their brains, right? I got to see brains at work justifying things, excusing things, committing to things, not committing to things, dropping out entirely. And I got to hear a lot of the, a lot of the justifications and rationalizations for that, which means I, I think that's had a massive payoff into being a coach, which is, which is it kind of like, except I'm, it's, it's going to sound weird because it accelerates the learning process, but at the same time I've done this for 24 years now. Right. So it's been a long time. But I, but I think that accelerated my understanding of people versus maybe a coach who gets on a call once a week with their clients and hasn't seen them in their physical lives. They see them like we are right now, sat in a chair, talking, and very often kind of in the, in the process of working toward cognitively working through something, right? Um, and, you know, I can sit here and put a big plastic smile on my face and bullshit you about all the, all the things I'm going to do as soon as I get off this call. Yeah, straight after this, I'm going to the gym and, I'm, and I can go, yeah, screw that. I'm not going to the gym, right? And you've got no, you've got no continuation of, our experience, of your experience of Dax Moy as soon as this call hangs up. With a coach several times a week and then seeing the physical self, experiencing the, the stories, the blocks, which part of the brains are operating. And I think that's what goes a long way to a long way toward it. So, you know, one of the things that I often recommend to recommend to coaches, even if you are not a physical coach is to, is to help your clients with their health, like work on work on their health, because even if they don't make massive inroads into it, you'll learn a lot from them about what they did and didn't do. And the stories they tell themselves about. And that's why, you know, you mentioned precision. I think that that's one of the things that precision nutrition are brilliant about. They're kind of, you know, analyzing behavior from a nutritional perspective, from a lifestyle, from a healthy lifestyle perspective, and kind of learning to break things down into smaller and smaller levels of threat and commitment. Yeah. Well, maybe we can move into sort of the last, uh, could be a big question, or it could be a big answer to a small question. <laughs> um, 
you know, I know that you, you, you love this stuff geeking out on neuroscience and research and reading. Um, and there's always new information coming out there, or maybe there's been some older research that suddenly is, is showing up as like, Oh yes, we're actually seeing how this can be applied or this idea, which we couldn't substantiate because maybe we didn't have the technology to see how things are firing in the brain. But is there something that you're sort of seeing right now that, that is in particular exciting you or that, maybe even more so is something that you're looking forward to either embracing for yourself or in your own teachings. Um, yes. I mean, in the, the short answer is yes, but the, it's not necessarily massive new realizations. It's the peeling the onion and going, going to, you know, those layers of depth that are kind of building up. One of the things, even, even during the, during the birth of mind map, um, Beliefs and values were always there. They were they were an extremely important part of the mind map process. Hmm. Uh, what's yeah. really surfacing for me more in the last couple of years, and it, you know, I did a lot of I spent a lot of time on it during during the first lockdown, um, and I just keep bringing myself back to it again and again and again. Which is which is morality. It's the study of morality, or our perceptions of morality, right and wrong, good or bad, good and yeah. evil. Excuse me, and. The reason I keep coming back to it is because what I find in a lot of instances, because, you know, we're, people often use the whole caveman thing and the threat thing and the saber-toothed tiger thing and all of that. But most of us aren't really in true physical danger in those ways anymore, right? We're kind of, we're, our, our greatest physical dangers for most of us would tend to be our lifestyle choices, right? Which, yeah. which lead us to like obesity and cancer and heart disease and, and all of those kind of things, right? So they're, they're ongoing and they're kind of insidious but there's no, for most of us, touch wood, most of us, there, there aren't major physical threats in our life on a day-to-day basis. Maybe if you're a firefighter or a cop or a soldier or something like that. But for most of us, we're not facing massive, massive physical threat. Um, so when, where, do, where do most of the other, other threats come from? They, this is one of the questions I'm constantly asking myself. And obviously, some of them are threats that are caused by our own feelings about things and the cognitive processes and the story layers that we build up on. So sticking with what I was saying a little while ago about going upstream, like, okay, what, in order to kind of feel those feelings, what must be the sponsoring emotion behind that? And where are some of those emotions being triggered from? And like, you know, kind of, as you know, in, in mind map, I, I'm constantly talking about our, the bulk of our threats are, all, are these days are going to be social. Yeah. Social threat is the biggest trigger. That's why I'm not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, tall enough, wealthy enough enough right or as you, um, and as you say acceptance connection and care in this right, sense right yeah. so kind of they're going to be social threat but then that leads you to well what is the ultimate social threat like where where does the ultimate social threat come from you can you can absolutely definitely be judged on your beliefs you can be judged on how you show up in the world through your values but there's there's judgment and some criticism. But what gets you demonized and dehumanized is your 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 personal matrix, your personal um, recipe of morality, right? Because you you may not you may or may not share Dax Moy's personal beliefs about some things, right? You go, yeah, but it, you know, I don't believe some of the stuff he believes, and I don't hold the same value hierarchy as Dax holds in those areas but I still get on with him he's a nice guy and kind of where I feel we can communicate and 
that's all well and good. But uh, if, if I've got something about my morality framework that you find offensive, you're, you're, or, and, and that's, the, that's the key, right? Morality is, is, is very rarely neutral. It's either, yeah, you're one of us or no, you're not, right? You, if you don't, and, and that's why, you know, we see it in politics. We see, we see it in gender and intersectionality and like, all of these different religion. We see it across there because you're either one of us or you're not. Yeah, it's a very tribal, almost. Right. An, I don't. Ancient isn't the right word. It's it's been a part of human organization, right? As, as long as we can recall, right? So, so morality for me is is one of those big kind of areas that I keep popping back to and digging into and trying to get a better understanding of, uh, and and with the understanding that morality is a framework that is gifted to us from other people. We do, it's it's not something we're born with. You're not born with morals, like if. If we were left in our animal state and we got really hungry, we, we wouldn't have a social taboo not to eat the dead, for example, right? It's, it doesn't it exist because someone said not to do it, right? And some cultures are okay with it. Some cultures, they actually eat parts of their, their loved ones. They, they take a bite out of their heart when they die and, and so on and so forth, right? So it's not, a, it's not a fundamental law of being human. These are social constructs. But they're extremely powerful social constructs that put us into binary right and wrong, good or bad, good or evil perspectives. And they're also the, the very same things that allow me to um, dehumanize you because you have a different um, gender or sexual identity to me, right? Like I, I go, you know, like I absolutely hate this person because of choices they are making. Right. And it's not just about me. I, I hate them because they are wrong. They are bad. They are evil. Dehumanization doesn't come from values. It doesn't come from come from general beliefs. It comes from much higher up. It comes from comes from morality. We, we demonize people, dehumanize people based on morality. And so that's 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 really socially. That's our biggest threat of being of of being outed in, in every sense of the word. Right. But kind of being being pushed out of our social groupings, being told that we're bad. And of course, when you attempt to dehumanize another person, they turn, they generally tend to turn around and dehumanize you right back. So that's where conflict really comes from. Yeah, so, in that yeah, sense. It's, it's a big area. Yeah, you're, you're on the extreme ends of either polarity. I mean, this is, for me, my attraction over the last couple of years to the, the Tao Te Ching, you know, and I, I'm still... I've got a ways to go because I, I'm, I'm still wrapping my brain around some of the ideas. Um, I don't want to say similar, but in a similar way to what you're talking about here is that there's such a simplicity in the way the Tao Te Ching expresses how to show up in life in a moral way without prescription. And that's very difficult for a lot of people who primarily either want to be followers and be told what to do and that we've got a world of nearly 8 billion people. It's a, it's a really big question. Can we have a non-prescriptive morality? I mean, we don't have the time to go. We could, I would love to have this conversation. We don't have the time to go into it here. Um, but that requires coming right back to an early part of our conversation, greater communing greater connection with other people so that you can sit in discourse so that you can allow for contention without going into extreme judgment or demonization and dehumanization like what you're talking about 
Um, and you know, that's whatever's happening in the world today. I, I feel hopeful when I see more people writing about how can we have constructive contention because it's everything is so contentious into argument these days. Well, we can't go right back to, Oh, kumbaya. I love you. We have to come to contention where we can sit at the same table and say, I have to walk away right now. Let's come back to this. Yeah. It, that one, of, one of the problems with that pathway of, of, you know, if we, if we don't do something about dehumanization and demonization, we, we write ourselves a permission slip for destruction, right? We're, yeah. we're allowed to do or say, or be anything to that other group. Cause we no longer count them as human. They're, They've mm-hmm. lost all their fucking rights. Like, just mm-hmm. because you voted for Trump, you're like, that's it. Like, you are a bad person. You've lost all of your rights to sit at this table, to yeah. have a discussion. Your job now is to just sit here and listen to me, right? Because you voted for that party, for that person, because you believe in that variant of God, because you, anything, because of who you love or, or whatever, because of that, you now no longer have a voice. And that that's what allows us to, write the ticket for destruction. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do think mor- there is a simpler version of morality. And I think that that version of morality is to focus. We already cover part of it in, in um, the mind map program, which, you know, I'll, I'm sure you remember doing it, but maybe not, not necessarily kind of thinking of it in that way, but it's, it's about your showing upwards, right? How do you, it's our decision about how we want other people to experience us, right? And so mine, the, are, mine are understanding, calm, thoughtful, and focused. Right, right. So and mine are powerful, courageous, and compassionate, right? I, I want the world to experience, experience me as powerful, as in I'm, I'm, I'm exhibiting a lot of certainty. And for me, power, power is really about influence. I'm, I'm trying to move things in a certain direction, right? Powerful courageous that means speak it speaking from the heart what's true for me regardless of whether it's true for you or not i can't i can't make decisions based upon whether it's true for you or not i can only make it based upon myself right and compassionate like understanding that we're all going through a journey we're all all experiencing some stuff um and understanding that it may what i say may not be the right message for you right now but i'm still going to speak it i'm just not going to i'm not going to wield it like a weapon i'm going to i'm going to use it to explain something about me and i think this is this is one of the challenges of morality the way it's currently used is people use morality to explain something about them right i i use my morality to tell you something about you like, it's the first time I'm meeting you in your life and I'm saying, well, be- because you happen to be gay or because you happen to be a, a Muslim or because you happen to be a Trump supporter or because you happen to be something, let me tell you something about you, buddy, yeah. right? That's the problem with the current model of morality. It's, it's me defining you. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the showing upwards process really is more about me defining me, but not just saying it, showing it, like, demonstrate to the world who you are through your actions. So perhaps morality needs to open up its field more along the lines of our emotions of safety and connection and care um, and that communing and to make that distinction between 
how we all want to feel um, in relation to each other versus a pure social construct or an ideology, because that's where we get into the binary. Right. And, and but, it, but it also always comes from that singularity of how do I want to experience myself? Right. How am I? Am I happy with the investment of exchanging, spending the days of my life toward this thing? Like, is the return on investment high enough? Well, it's never going to feel high enough while you're going around in the world telling everybody else about how they need to measure up to a certain standard that they never signed up to and agreed to. And that they, 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 they may never sign up to and agree to, right? So what you do is you go, you know what? I'm going to show up in the world as this version of my, myself not because I come from a group who say you have to, but because this is who I want to be. I want to show up in the world as this version of me. And again, that's a very iterative and intentional process of finding those finding your value words, defining your beliefs, finding finding your showing up words. Right, your showing up words are a way of saying, "Screw how the world wants to see me, or what I think the world might want from me. What do I want to show the world? How yeah. do I want to show up?" And aligning with that. It's like the classic example of the sage in many of these ancient texts. So the Tao Te Ching will talk about the sage holding the precious jade stone close to their chest, beneath their cloak. It is just old cloth. It's nothing fantastic. They walk through the village. Kind of no one really pays them attention. But they have close to their heart that precious stone, which is just a metaphor for being, as you've expressed, showing up in the world uh, in the way that's, for lack of a better word, like in the best way that they can, um, but, and, and, and without, ide- without ideology, without preaching, without going up to anyone and saying how they should be, but generally then asking questions or offering an aphorism instead of a direct statement, should they ever be approached? Right. You know, I I could summarize that in don't show up in the world telling people how they should be show up in the world being how you are, right. Being, being who you chose to be. That's it. Right. Um, I, I don't need to listen to you telling me that I need to be a better man or a better father or a better husband or like, and I need to need to think this way. And I mean, I need to be more inclusive or anything like, I will probably like during my lifetime, I, I say this, I, was, I said this on stage before, like during my lifetime, I've been racist, I've been sexist, I've been homophobic, I've been, um, you know, misogynistic, I've been all of those things, right? Particularly in my, in my younger self, I was, I was brought up in a, in a family where that was what was modeled to me. And this is how you spoke about people and how you spoke yeah. to people, yeah. right? Over the course of my lifetime, I, I've, I've made made friends with so many different people from so many different of life that I came to realize that the models I was using were crap and that there's no such thing that kind of uh, all black people are like this or gay people are like this or straight people are like that or Muslims are like this or like there's no there's no broad stroke that I can put across everyone there's either people that treat me good uh, or people that don't right so kind of and and so this is this is how we start to break out of all of these models. And instead of saying that we owe each other something, right? So like it's more a case of I don't owe you anything, but when I when I actually show up, I'm going to spend part of Dax Moy on this conversation and show you who I am, right? 
that that's the only thing that really makes sense going through going through our lives like going through it with this idea that i have to be something for you or you have to be something for me it's just a it's just a way for us always to feel that we're in each other's debt right and that, and that just creates more and more of the problems that we've already got. We're kind of, okay, you, you now owe me even more because of something you said or did or a post you made 10 years ago or like, you know, what, whatever it happens to be, right? And I, I think that the simplest, you know, and you know I'm big on simplicity, so the simplest answer is from a morality perspective, stop leaning into group morality and instead start leaning into solo morality which is just another way for saying, I'm going to spend the days of my life being this person. You'll attract some, you'll repel others, many others will be indifferent to you. But the people that the people that you do attract will be clustered groups and tribes of people that have some common ground with, with your view of how, well, what the planet Earth and living on it looks like. Whereas if you if you cling to a group morality and ideology, what, what you'll do is you'll just create two combating armies. You'll say, I'm on this, I'm in this army, and our job is to beat the living shit out of the people in the other army until they either um, capitulate or they're gone. Right? And, and I don't see that as being a kind of a winning argument. No, not at all. I think that's a perfect place for us to wrap it up. That was really wonderful. I appreciate your time, Dax. Um, I'll put some information in the show notes, but is there a particular place where you would like people to find you yeah well i I happen to be the only dax moy on the planet at the moment so um, there's only one person with that particular combination so you can find me on facebook or my website under the same name dax moy um if you're interested in the stuff we've been speaking about here and would like to explore coaching then um mindmapcoach.com is probably the best place to go for that perfect dax thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it that's been awesome thanks for having me on buddy thank you